How do you feel great on vacation? Like really good? Easy, you go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great, you'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. This is On Point. I'm Deborah Becker, in for Meghna Chakrabarty. Today, we're helping start the new year with stories of meaningful relationships. I am almost 61, and I have a group of friends. We have been together since we were 12, and we see each other at least once a year. Now that we're older, we see each other two, three, four times a year. And we have been there through, obviously, high school, college, marriage, children, divorce, death, our aging parents. And we are just each other's rocks, best friends, sisters, and couldn't live without them. I grew up the seventh of nine children on a farm near Niagara Falls, New York. My most vital social influence has been my eight brothers and sisters. Our most important activity has been singing together, all nine of us. My three brothers and I also had our own barbershop quartet. I have a friend who we have been friends since 1961. We were born in 1959, so we don't really remember not knowing each other. And I cannot give words to how I could never have managed this life alone. And truthfully, the thing I worry about most in life is which one of us is going to go first because the other one will be completely undone. Those are On Point listeners Paula Sweeney from Seattle, Ronald Harrington from Ventura, California, and Sue Siebert from Montrose, Colorado. Their stories might make all of us consider what makes us healthiest and happiest in life. Well, Harvard researchers have been trying to scientifically answer that question since at least 1938, when two studies began following the lives of 268 undergraduate students at Harvard and another Another group of 456 boys from disadvantaged families in Boston. These two efforts later merged into what's now called the Harvard Study of Adult Development. For more than 85 years, scientists have followed the lives of these boys and young men as they got older. Later, it included their spouses and, more recently, the lives of their descendants. It's called the longest scientific study of happiness ever conducted. So... What have they learned? Well, joining us to talk about that is Bob Waldinger. He's director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development and a clinical professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. Welcome to On Point. Thank you. It's great to be here. And Mark Schultz is also with us. He's associate director of the study and professor of psychology at Bryn Mawr College. Together, they wrote, they co-wrote the book, The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness. Mark, it's great to have you as well. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be with you. So I wonder, Bob, if we could start with you when you heard the montage of our listeners sharing their stories about what is important to them and their relationships. What stood out for you? It felt so familiar because we've studied now thousands of lives over 85 years, and the reports that we got 
from people were exactly these about the family members. I couldn't imagine my life without the friends who helped me through the most important milestones of my life. That these are the kind of messages that came to us from the people who led the happiest and the healthiest lives. And, and Mark, I wonder, you know, we might all think it's kind of intuitive, right, that relationships are very important, that relationships affect us probably in the deepest ways in our lives. But I wonder, what does this study say about how, how they affect us specifically and, and why? What do we know about that? Yeah, that's such an important and a big question. Mm. So it turns out relationships affect us in lots of ways, that they serve many functions for us that, that really lead to both happiness and health, as Bob suggested. So um, one of the ways they help us is that they provide us a sense of who we are. They connect us with our past. Your listeners, their testimonies talked about that sort of connection to their childhood and how they've gone through the journey of life with other people, and that's important to us. Another really critical function of relationships is they're really good at helping us navigate challenges and stress in our lives. So we all experience challenges. Um, the trick is navigating them, and it turns out that relationships are a really important resource when we're facing stress. Our, our friends, our relatives, people that we're close with help us deal with our emotions, help us think about uh, the challenge and, and maybe a path forward. So relationships serve many, many functions, uh, more than I think many of us assume, um, but they contribute uh, through those many functions to our health and our happiness. Hmm. Can you tell me a little bit more, Bob, about health-wise? What do we know about uh, you know, they might make us feel good, better relationships, but really, do they help? Uh, they really help our health. They really do. And in fact, when we began to find that in our study, we didn't believe it at first, because you know it makes sense that we'd be happier if we have better relationships. Hmm. But how could relationships actually make it? more likely that we wouldn't get heart disease or type 2 diabetes or arthritis as we get older. How could that be possible? So for the last 10 years, we've been studying how relationships get into our bodies and actually shape our physiology. And many other laboratories have been studying this as well. And, and they actually do. They, we, we've, you've actually seen a positive correlation between good relationships and good health. Oh, yes. And many studies, not just our own. Um, the best hypothesis about this is that relationships help us manage stress. Because mm -hmm. if you think about it, stress comes at us in life all the time. You know, I'm having a good time talking with you right now, but an hour from now, something stressful may happen and mm -hmm. my body will change. My blood pressure will go up. My heart rate will go up. If I can go home and talk to somebody, I can literally feel my body calm down. And we think that that function of relationships goes a long way to helping us stay healthy as we get older. Right. Now, we said you followed these folks uh, for, through their lives. This has been a study that's followed people. I, I wonder what it means to follow them. Can you tell me, Mark, a little bit about that? I mean, is it it's questionnaires, it's surveys, it's meetings? What, what does that mean exactly to look at the lives and the relationship yeah. lives of the subjects in your study? Yeah, so we, we like to say we followed them really closely. Yeah, so this was a study from its very origins. Both of the studies that started separately were really interested in the daily experience of their participants and 
getting a sense of what was going on inside their heads. So interviews were always an important part of the study, in-depth interviews in which folks got a chance to talk about their lives, their perceptions, what was important, what was challenging in their life. There were observations of the original participants with their parents, interviews with their parents as well. And over the 85 years of the study, regular questionnaires about every two years, very lengthy ones, including standard psychological questionnaires, but also open-ended questions. Uh, we collected uh, medical information regularly about every five years for the participants, observed them in different settings, um, and continued to interview them regularly about every decade over the last 85 years. And since Bob and I have been involved, which is roughly for the last 20 years, um, we also introduced more modern strategies. So we put people in situations that were stressful and watched how their bodies responded while we were collecting physiology data. We collected blood assays so that we could understand their immune functioning. We put them in scanners so we could look at their brain activity when they were experiencing certain challenges. And we also observed them very closely interacting with a partner, with a loved one. So we, we follow them very closely and we try and think about both relationships and well-being in a broad and sort of multifactorial way. So we're looking at multiple factors, not just one, not just what they say about themselves, but also trying to observe them, trying to collect data from people that know them well. Uh, so this was an intensively close study, even mm. though it lasted over 85 years. Mm. And still with the same conclusion, that, that it's relationships that really matter and that are key to having, to, to thriving, if you will. That's right. When, when we sort of step back and try and see, is there a signal? Because good science is really about a common signal, what we call replication. Mm -hmm. So even in our study where we have hundreds of separate studies that have been published over the years, is there a common signal among many of those studies? And the common signal in our data was the importance of relationships, both for happiness and for health. And then we looked more broadly when we wrote the, the book, The Good Life, we looked more broadly to see whether that was true in other studies, because it's really important to look at replication across different samples, across time, across culture, across gender. Um, and we found that the power of relationships was present in many, many studies, thousands of studies. And that's even though you had you started with subjects from very different backgrounds, right? Mm -hmm. You had uh, folks who, <laughs> students at Harvard and uh, men from very disadvantaged backgrounds in Boston. So it, so it didn't really matter. Would you say that, Bob, where people came from? Well, it did matter where they came from. Mm -hmm. So what we learned was that the inner city men who were from not just the poorest families, but the most disadvantaged families, mm -hmm. so known to five social service agencies on average, each family for domestic violence, uh, familial illness and mental illness. So those young men who were born with so many strikes against them, they lived on average 10 years shorter than the Harvard men. Mm -hmm. And we think that had had something to do with privilege, with access to healthcare, with access to information about how to take care of yourself. So it did matter. But when it comes to happiness, the inner city men were just as happy as the Harvard men, and their families were just as happy. And in some cases, happier. Yes, exactly. Privilege does not guarantee happiness at all. Mark, would you like to add to that before we go to a break in about a minute? 
No, I, th I think what you're describing, Deborah, is absolutely right, that despite these incredible differences and the circumstances in which we started with these participants, the same factors, the quality of their relationships, turned out to be the most robust predictor of their health and happiness. And that's quite startling. I think it's really important. Okay. We're talking about the Harvard Study of Adult Development. It's a study that's been going on for 85 years. It finds that meaningful relationships are at the core of human health and happiness. We'll be back with more in a minute. I'm Deborah Becker. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Deborah Becker. Today, we're joined by Bob Waldinger and Mark Schultz. They lead the Harvard Study of Adult Development and they're co-authors of the book, The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness. They're helping us dive into their study, one that began in 1938, and helping us understand the significance of meaningful relationships in human health and happiness. Over the holidays, so many of you left us messages about the meaningful relationships in your lives. Let's take a listen to some. I have two really great friends, Kelton and Corey. We did debate together in high school. Both of them have been there throughout the highs and the lows in my life. Through the tough times of high school, all of us getting married, all of us having kids. So they are probably the most meaningful friendships that I have outside of the one where I'm married to my very lovely wife. The most meaningful relationship in my life is my best friend, Elizabeth. Currently, we live on opposite coasts, and we're both working on novels, and we submit our writing to one another four days a week. And we talk like clockwork once a week, 8 o'clock in the morning on Mondays. And it is the highlight of my week. We're always there for one another, and there is nothing that we don't talk about. My dad, he and I used to butt heads every single moment when I was a kid. But as I got older, we both really learned to see each other as individuals. And um, he is one of my best friends in the world. I can go to him with anything, knowing full well that I'll never be judged, that he'll always be there for me. And I, uh, having that type of relationship has been really beneficial in my life because it allows me to feel like I can carry on other meaningful, long-term relationships that are vulnerable and honest. 
Those were On Point listeners Al Russo from Boston, Kate Pretorius from Redlands, California, and Cal Lively from Spokane, Washington. So whether it's a relationship with someone we call a best friend, maybe a writing partner, maybe a family member, we all tend to have different types of relationships. And we're talking about how important relationships are to our overall health. So I want to ask uh, Mark Schultz if he can tell us a little bit about defining a good relationship and the relationship relationships that seem to be uh, the most important to folks and their happiness. Sure. So, you know, this idea that relationships bring so many benefits also means that all sorts of relationships can be important to us, that it's unlikely we're going to get all we need from one relationship. But if we think about the elements that make for a good relationship, we probably need to start with trust, uh, a sense that the person will be there for you, that has your back, um, is really looking out for your welfare, and is interested in knowing who you are. So when we talk about intimacy, intimacy, the roots of that word really mean to share important aspects of oneself with another. So that's an important aspect of relationships. Um, Another key is really providing support. So relationships provide all sorts of support during times of stress, uh, instrumental kinds of support, helping us figuring out how to do things or get to an appointment that we need to get to. Uh, So those are the elements of relationships. I would add one other thing, which is reciprocity. Uh, This is an idea that we need to both give things in relationships and receive them. It doesn't need to be the same things, but relationships that are successful often have um, a degree of reciprocity that's really important to that relationship. Hmm. And, you know, we should say we're talking about uh, what's considered the longest study of, of human happiness ever conducted and what makes people happy. And you both, Bob and Mark, have found that relationships are key here. And and I'd like to know if there is someone, uh, Bob, who really stands out from the study to you who sort of epitomizes this or maybe even surprised you. Um, is there an anecdote of someone in the study that you like to bring up when you're talking about uh, what you've learned through the years? There is. There's a man we call Leo in mm. the book. Mm. Um, the story are real, but we disguise the names for privacy. Mm. But Leo was a Harvard undergraduate, seemed like his life was all set up to be great. Um, And he went off to World War II because most of those men were of that age. He came back from the war. He wanted to be a writer, but his mother was ill. He needed to come back and take care of his mother. And so he had to set aside his dream of being a writer, and he became a high school teacher. He became a history teacher. And he loved his students. He loved his colleagues. He really enjoyed being with his kids and grandkids. And he was a high school teacher his whole life. Had to set aside this more illustrious dream of being a famous writer, um, but really found what lit him up in his relationships with other people. So that, in fact, we at one point estimated that he was probably our happiest person Hmm. in our study. Hmm. And could someone be happy even if they didn't, say, have purposeful work where they were highly regarded and or perhaps uh, didn't have an intimate partner or you know were unmarried I mean how how does how does that fit in absolutely because it doesn't usually have to do with the external trappings it doesn't have to do with what kind of job you have it doesn't have to do with whether you have an intimate partner 
it has to do with having a connection with somebody that's of the quality that Mark was describing, where you feel like there's reciprocity. Somebody really gets you, and you really get them, and you're there for each other in hard times. It doesn't matter if you live together. It doesn't matter if they're a workmate. Um, there are all kinds of places to get these um, energizing elements into our lives. And Mark, I wonder, you know, Bob mentioned uh, World War II. So there were cultural factors going on at the time. The Great Depression, many of the many of the men mm-hmm. in this study had, had lived through the Great Depression, had served in World War II. I wonder how you think that affected their relationships. And in the, in the same token, maybe compare it to some of the cultural things that we've gone through more recently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think, you know, one of the things that really for me has been just a great pleasure being part of the study is is really learning history in this way. So Mm -hmm. these were men and young boys who grew up at a particular time in our history. And at that time, they were really socialized to not talk a lot about their feelings, uh, to be independent. Um, The college sample, remarkable, close to 90% of that sample served in World War II. Most of them volunteered to serve, which I think is incredible to today's um, younger folks that people would, you know, volunteer to serve in the military Mm -hmm. in that way. Uh, So there were definitely generational differences that are important in terms of the things that they valued and the way they talked, particularly about feelings and their sense of how important it was to be independent and uh, to provide for others as well. Um, So those have changed over the years, those uh, sort of cultural values. And that was part of the task when we wrote The Good Life was to be sure that we were looking beyond a particular period of time and beyond a particular set of cultures to look across countries and time to to look for that, again, that common signal that we could see. And I think we saw it. Um, But I think you're also asking about another thing, which is is this idea that there are always going to be challenges. So for this generation, the Depression seemed like it was perhaps a singular challenge. World War II happened, which was an incredible challenge and inspired people to serve their country in ways that were quite unusual. Um, the 60s was a time of great upheaval for these folks. Uh, there were periods of great recession. And we continue to live through these kinds of challenges at the societal level. So it's very clear that life is filled with expected and unexpected challenges. And the key is really adapting to those challenges, to rising to the occasion, to learning uh, new things about ourselves when we meet challenges, and also depending on others in our network to, to meet those challenges. So they continue to happen, the pandemic being the latest example of right. a worldwide Right. Wanted to make yeah. sure you mentioned that one in there because that certainly taught yeah. us a lot about about relationships. Bob, you wanted to add something. Yes, because we asked people um, when they were nearing the end of their life. We said, you know, you grew up during the Great Depression. You, the Harvard men, served in World War II. How did you get through these big global challenges, these scary times? And everybody to a person, mentioned their relationships as getting them through the hard times. So people would talk about the Depression saying, all of our neighbors shared whatever they had in order for us all to get by. Mm. The soldiers would say, it was the people who wrote me letters. It was my fellow soldiers who got me through the scariest times. And I think what we find now when we talk to people about the pandemic is that much of the sustenance we got was from other people. 
um, as we tried to get through these scary times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and 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 also, I because of we'll make a bit a little bit of a of a follow here because of the pandemic. We also learned how we might be able to use technology to help us, right? To help us maintain contact with each other, which can be very good. Well, exactly. You're lighting up, Bob, and it's so. So I. <laughs> but it can be very bad too. So okay. I'm going to let you talk about that. All right. A so, bit. so in my in my other jobs. I do two things that I never dreamed you could do online. One is I'm a psychiatrist. I do psychotherapy every day. Mm. If you had told me you could do meaningful psychotherapy with people on Zoom, I would have said that's impossible. Well, it's quite possible. The other thing is that I teach Zen meditation. And if you had told me that a meditation group could meet online and find it really powerful and useful, I would have said that's impossible, but we're doing it. And so what I find, and I think Mark would agree with this as a researcher, is that we just want to stay open to being surprised Mm. rather than assuming we know what's possible and what's not possible. Mm -hmm. Would you agree with that, Mark? I would. Um, I also think there there are clear challenges. So, um, you know, I'm a professor. I taught throughout the pandemic, and we learned new tricks in terms of uh, reaching students remotely. But we also learned some of the challenges. And I think these are challenges that are commonly experienced by people in the workplace and just with the connections they have if they live distant from people. Um, that technologies, we have to be creative. So, you know, there, there are memes out there about um, the problem with new technologies. You can think about when newspapers were introduced um, and people on the trolleys were, you know, sitting in front of people with newspapers, blocking their view of others, that the technologies that we carry with us have the, the capacity to separate us from others. So we need to use their uh, incredible powers to figure out ways to improve connections and to, to cultivate those connections rather than to allow us to spend less time with others. So I think there's wide variability in the impact of technology. And part of that is for some people, the technologies means that they don't have to be in as many meetings. Uh, they don't have to spend as much time with colleagues. They don't have that opportunity. They lose that opportunity to have those water cooler conversations that were important or that pre-meeting time where people gather and we ask each other about how their weekend was. So we need to be more creative. Um, and I love the idea of being open to the wonder that Bob is talking about. But we really need to lean in and think about the ways to harness technologies to improve connections because I think they also have the capacity to make us more distant as well. Right. Uh, I also wonder, uh, you know, everyone knows that uh, the people you care about the most can also hurt you the most. And Mm -hmm. and that hurt can affect not only the relationship with that person, but your ability to develop relationships in the future uh, to a large degree. So, Bob, I'm wondering, uh, in the book you do talk about managing relationship challenges and conflict. What advice do you give to folks to not be so burned by a bad relationship that you you have trouble forging relationships in the future and or to to maybe restore a, a broken relationship what would you say well it is true that when we've had bad experiences particularly in childhood we come to expect that relationships aren't going to go well and so we do really need to be open to different possibilities as new people come into our lives. 
you know, and as you're saying, working on relationships turns out to be a very important challenge for all of us. No important relationship is going to be without conflict or disagreement. So the question is not, can I have a relationship that's always smooth? That's never going to be possible. But can I find a way with this person to work out the conflicts so that we both get to the other side feeling good about each other? and feeling okay about ourselves. If that can't happen and we try again and again, then many times it's important to step away because relationships that keep causing us pain and don't seem workable can be, in many cases, stepped away from, and we can move on and find new people in our lives. Hmm. Yeah, the book also mentions a method, what you call it the wiser method where you ask people to really take stock of what's going on. And I wonder, Mark, can you explain that? Can you explain? Do you think <laughs> that, that a lot of people can benefit from this type of method in dealing with challenges that will, as Bob said, inevitably arise in relationships? I think they can. So, you know, part of the task is normalizing those challenges as Bob was doing, mm -hmm. uh, recognizing that they're expectable and they're common across relationships. And more generally in the book, part of what we're advocating is for people to reflect on their experiences and be more proactive. So we want to think about relationships as something akin to physical fitness. It's like social fitness. And we want to um, put energy into those relationships and spend some time reflecting about what's working and what's not working. So the wiser method is just a structured way of thinking about challenging relationships. It's an acronym for a series of steps that you can go through. Uh, the W stands for watch. So when you experience a stressful encounter with someone, maybe a sibling that you're having some challenges with or a friend, um, you want to really pay attention and particularly ask yourself the question of what may I miss here? What What is here that I, perhaps I haven't seen? And then we take people through a series of steps that involves really thinking about what the stake is for them, um, what's the critical issue? Are there different ways of thinking about this situation and thinking about you know, how I interpret it, particularly how we interpret the actions of others? We tend to often intuit intent when it may not be there. So maybe a friend of mine um, does something that I get upset about, and part of the upset is that I think they did it intentionally. And when we talk about it, it's very clear that it was completely unintentional. It had to do with being stuck in traffic or distracted by something. So these are a series of steps that we suggest people can use to really think about difficult encounters, thinking about the strategies that they can use to respond, and also to evaluate how they do when they enact those strategies, what's working, what's not working. So this is just one example of being more reflective and intentional about one's social fitness. Hmm. And, and I wonder, Bob, uh, briefly, could you just explain that idea of social fitness? Yes. Well, we coined the term because... It seemed to us that keeping your relationships strong and healthy was sort of like keeping your body strong and healthy. It was analogous to physical fitness. Mm -hmm. So the hope is that like physical fitness, we practice 
connecting with other people day in and day out, we go back and do it again and again by calling people, texting people, spending time in person with people, that it's a regular ongoing practice that keeps us fit socially. All right. We're discussing lessons from the world's longest scientific study of happiness and how 85 years of following people's lives have taught researchers that meaningful relationships are the core of well-being. I'm Deborah Becker. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm Deborah Becker. Today, we're talking about the longest study on happiness, the Harvard Study of Adult Development. It started in 1938, and it looks at how meaningful relationships are at the center of well-being. We're joined by Bob Waldinger, director of the study and clinical professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. Also with us is Mark Schultz, associate director of the study and professor of psychology at Bryn Mawr College. They're co-authors of the book, The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness. And Bob and Mark, again, we're going to ask you to stand by for a minute because so many listeners have shared stories with us about their relationships. Let's listen. When my husband and I retired, we suddenly made many new friends, even though we were in a very rural area, because we joined up in a hiking group. All through COVID, we were able to hike together. We weren't able to carpool anymore, but we were able to hike together and socially distance, but still talk. Thomas was born two weeks and two days after I was. Our parents placed us together in the same crib approximately four weeks after my birth. Since then, we've been very close growing up together. Our families would take trips together. But the most joyful moment occurred when he came to my mom's 81st birthday. When he appeared, he hadn't seen my mom for over 11 years. And the look on her face was so joyful. She was so thrilled to see him. A couple of months before my husband and I got married, he took his ex-wife and me and their eight-year-old son to a baseball game. And during the game, my soon-to-be stepson snuggled up beside me and leaned on me. And I kind of nervously glanced over at his mom and thought she might not like having her son show me such affection and warmth. But instead, she kindly smiled and encouraged our bonding together. Now, almost 30 years later, we share a seven-year-old granddaughter, and she shares her with me the same way she shared her son, with love, maturity, and grace. 
Those were On Point listeners Jody Huntington in Aurora, Colorado, Jason Vincente in Newington, Connecticut, and Emma Stamis in Shelburne Falls, Massachusetts. Wonderful stories about warm relationships, and we were talking about social fitness, this idea of social fitness before the break. I want to ask, though, uh, Mark Schultz, what about people who have real difficulty with with, uh, social fitness? What advice do you give to them? Yeah. So first, such incredible stories, right? This is the Mm. limits of radio as I'm smiling. I even have a a Mm. kind of tear I recognize in the corner of my eye just hearing these stories. Mm. But these are really stories of success and relationships. And we need to remember that not everyone is so fortunate or at various times in our life, we may struggle in relationships or we might experience that loss that many of the listeners talked about where they, you know, have grown fond and close to someone and they worry about losing that person in in their life. So important to remember if we one way of thinking about this are the reports of loneliness, which are quite uh, high in the United Mm -hmm. States and other uh, advanced countries. So in a given week, uh, somewhere between 20 and 50 percent of the population reports feeling lonely. And what that means is they feel like someone doesn't have their back or doesn't really know them or doesn't really care about what's happening to them. Surprisingly, higher rates for young people, for example, in universities, they report some of the highest rates of loneliness. So it's not about physical proximity. It's about a sense that someone doesn't really know you or care about you. Um, So lots of people struggle in relationships. And one of the lessons I think from our 85 years of research is that it's never too late for anyone to do something about that. So we hear stories of people making new friends, of really intentionally uh, being proactive and leaning into the task of social fitness. Uh, So doing things like joining a hiking group. I love that story from the listener. Uh, Going to a gym and discovering new friends. Uh, Making new friends often involves uh, spending time with others and an activity that's important to you. It can be a recreational activity. It can be volunteering. Uh, That's the way we often make new connections. It takes time. It often takes something like on the order of 40 or 50 hours of that repeated contact. And during that contact, we begin to share things about ourselves that are important to us, and we allow the other person into our life that way. So really important for people who feel alone, and I think there are lots of people that feel that, um, that there are ways to improve those connections. And it's never too late. We have people in our study that that did it in their 60s and 70s after feeling quite lonely. Mm. But, you know, it it raises the question, doesn't it? Um, When someone says they're lonely, they could be surrounded by people, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, this is a very subjective thing that's going on in someone's life. So it's hard, I imagine, as as a scientist to measure, but it's also hard for folks to maybe realize when it really is a problem for them and how they might be able to improve. What What do you say to that, Bob? Well, we know that the causes of loneliness are many. Mm. So some people are lonely because they are physically isolated from other people. But as you say, you can be lonely in a crowd. You can be lonely in a marriage. So the first step is to figure out, what do I want? Do I need more people in my life? And if I do, what's getting in the way? Sometimes it's our own fears. And there's a lot of good help for that, even psychotherapy, uh, various forms of of help for loneliness. Um, and certainly joining various groups can help. Um, 
But in addition, uh, sometimes it's really structuring our lives to make sure that we do have contact with new people because that is the surest way to make new connections. The other thing that's worth mentioning is that being an introvert is perfectly normal. All of us are on a spectrum somewhere from being introverts to being extroverts, being party animals. And there's nothing healthier about one or the other. So introverts are people who need a lot of alone time, and they get refueled by mm -hmm. being on their own. They may just need one or two good, close relationships, and that's perfectly healthy for them. Extroverts get their energy from other people, so they need more people in their lives. So the first step, I think, for each of us is just to check in with ourselves and say, okay, what works for me in terms of the number of important relationships that are good for me in my life? And then, of course, it's defining important relationships, right? Casual relationships, are they just as important as deeper relationships? Or, you know, how, how does all the whole picture sort of fit into this? Mark, I, I want to bring you into this. What would you say? So it, we really emphasize the idea that it's all kinds of relationships that are important. Uh, of course, there's certain functions that are often served by key people in your network. So someone that really has your back and the study we ask participants in the middle of the night if you were scared or sick, is there someone that you can contact? Mm -hmm. And some people said yes, and some people who were married uh, said that they really couldn't re rely on their partner, for example. So we, we need that person who has our back when times are tough and we need assistance. Um, but I think we tend to discount how important some of those more distant ties can be for us. So the person who we might grab coffee with or serve us coffee in the morning, the people we see on our commute to work. Uh, in fact, there's a great study that we talk about in the book that was done in Chicago as people were commuting to work. So they grabbed people before they went on the L, and they said, what are you going to do on the train? Uh, and they said, I'm going to read a book. I'm going to zone out. I'm going to sleep. Um, are, are you going to talk to people? Oh, I don't do that. Yeah, this is Chicago, <laughs> mind you, the Midwest. I, I don't and do that. And they still don't talk. I don't mm. do that. Um, so these were psychologists, and we do cruel things. And they said, well, we're going to randomly assign half of you to talk to strangers, <laughs> is what they did. And they caught people. It was a very clever study. They asked them how they felt before they even started the study. And then they grabbed them at the end of their commute. And they said, how are you feeling now? And it turned out that the people that talked to strangers felt a lift. They felt their mood improve quite dramatically. And the folks who did the usual zone out and sleep on the train didn't have that lift. So this is just one example of that kind of uplift that we get when we talk to people that may be more distant, our neighbors that we wave at, uh, the people, again, that we see on the way to work, the people we meet when we travel. I think that kind of jolt of energy is about a recognition that we're, we're, we're part of a larger community, that the world is larger than what goes on just in my own brain. Um, and that's really important to us. I think it has healthful and energizing effects on us that we tend to discount. I also, uh, because you're, you're bringing this up and, and bringing up uh, folks' perspectives and even beliefs to a certain degree, we, we do have to point out that when this study began, we were talking about Harvard graduates and men, young men or teenagers from uh, disadvantaged families in Boston. But it's all white men, really, right? So that, that's how this began. So what, what steps have you taken to diversify uh, your subjects, but also... Does the lack 
of diversity affect the lens at which you're examining this issue? Bob, what would you say? We were very concerned about that. The reason why the study began with all white men was because that was the bias, of course, at the time. But also the city of Boston, where the study began, Mm. was 97.4% white in 1938. But half of those families were immigrant families. Um, Many people from the Middle East, not just Europeans. Um, And in addition... What we have done since then is been very careful to look at other studies of more diverse populations to make sure that other studies point in the same direction, that they also point to the importance of relationships, whether you're an African-American sharecropper in rural Georgia or you are um, someone in northern Finland. Studies of all these different populations point in the same direction to the centrality of relationships. And in the book, if studies don't corroborate our findings, we either don't present the findings or we're very clear that this is a limitation of our study. Mm -hmm. Um, But basically what we present in the book are findings that are, we believe, universal. Hmm. Mark, would you like to add to that? I think that's right, perfectly said. So the key here is looking at groups of studies. So science moves slowly. Bob and I are both scientists, very conservative in terms of our willingness to state something that we don't believe is supported by research. And when we began the book, we started by our work on the book, we started by, is is there something we can say that might be of importance to folks? And we did that by looking beyond our study at hundreds and hundreds of other studies. So we talk about what are called meta-analyses, which are studies of studies. Sometimes there are hundreds or thousands of studies. And it's really clear that the signal that we're talking about here, which is that relationships are linked to better health and happiness, is supported by studies across culture, across ancestry, across time. It's a pretty phenomenal kind of robustness. When you see that pattern in science, it's remarkable. Um, And that's what inspired us to write the book. And that's the message that we're trying to bring to Mm -hmm. folks. You know, it struck me in the book that a lot of this really is about taking stock of your life and your priorities, right? And, And there's a really interesting exercise in the book about finding an old photograph of yourself and thinking about, can you explain that a little bit, Bob? Because I thought that was really wonderful. Yes, the exercise is asking people to find an old photograph when they were, say, half the age they are now, and to look at that photograph and to think to yourself, what was life like then? How did life look to me? What was important? And how is that the same as now? And how is it different? How do I look at life differently? Because one of the things that we have seen as lifespan researchers is that so much changes over the course of adult life. I mean, we followed these people from their teenage years mm. into their 90s. Mm. Think about how different you are today from when you were a teenager. And so what we do is we want to help people appreciate the fact that life is a continual process of growth and change and that how we see life changes as we move through it. And I wonder, the two of you, uh, in doing this work all this time, have 
are friends, right? Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. yeah have a strong relationship. So, uh, Mark, let's let's start with you. Describe your relationship with each other and and how it's affected your life. Well, I think one of your listeners that was probably part of what I was smiling about described. Um, I think it was the writing partners that talk once a week and they have a date every week and. Bob and I have effectively had that for a long time. So Bob and I got to know each other a little over 30 years ago when we began what was really a kind of collegial relationship, working together um, with common interests and research, helping each other with the things that we didn't know. And uh, I think we started having lunch regularly at that point when I was in Boston. And about 27 years ago, I moved to the Philadelphia area to teach at Bryn Mawr College. And since that time, Bob and I have had a regular date for the last 15 years, at least. It's always been Fridays at noon, and it's something we both look forward to. And there's lots of work that gets conducted during that hour and a half, but there's also a lot of sharing of our experiences and checking up on our families and um, some gossip. Um, we don't always talk about important things. So our relationship <laughs> has grown from a collegial one to a real friendship, and it's one that I certainly value and, um, you you know, helped sustain us. I have to say, I've been writing for a long time, and writing is always hard. I think people are um, surprised to hear that, you know, successful writers also find the task hard. It's hard work. Mm. Um, it's also lonely work generally, mm. uh, but there's nothing better for me than writing with Bob. Uh, Bob and I have written a lot together, and I think we bring out the best in each other and complement each other in important ways. So it's, it's an enriching work relationship and also an important friendship for me. Very nice. Bob, what would you say? Yeah. I mean, I would echo all that <laughs> and also say that, you know, we have different skills, which is one of the fun things about this. Like Mark is really great at crunching numbers and I'm not so good at crunching numbers. <laughs> and so we we rely on each other for different strengths and together we are way stronger as a research team uh, than I think either of us would mm. be on our own. And And that's, you know, the... The rising tide floats all boats. I'm not sure what the right phrase is, but it's really important to realize how much we can um, we can uh, contribute to each other's strengths by sharing what we know how to do together. In work and in life, I Absolutely. bet you would say. Absolutely. All right. Bob Waldinger, director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development and a clinical professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. Bob, thanks for being with us today. It was a pleasure. And Mark Schultz, associate director of the study and professor of psychology at Bryn Mawr College. Mark, it was great to have you. Yeah, real pre pleasure. Thank you, Deborah. I'm Deborah Becker. This is On Point.